0: From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. This podcast is called Here is a Play Fitted. That line from A Midsummer Night's Dream was the title of a 2013 Folger exhibition. It looked at the impact of set and costume designers on performances of Shakespeare's plays, from his time, to the extent that we know about it, to our own. The exhibition explored how the strikingly different choices of these artists affected the audience's imaginations and, interestingly, what those choices tell us about the times in which the plays were performed. The curator of that exhibition is the guest on this podcast, Denise Whalen, an associate professor in the Department of Drama at Vassar College. She is interviewed by Steve Martin.
1: So, Denise, when most people are watching a Shakespeare play, they're probably assuming they're seeing an authentic presentation of Shakespeare's work. But one of the things you pointed out in the exhibition you curated at the Folger was that every presentation of Shakespeare is made a bit different by the theater professionals who are staging that performance. Would you talk about how that happens?
2: Well, in part, it's that theater professionals want to present the play to the audience that they're given. And so depending on who the audience is that the production is being presented to, um, the play can change drastically. And certainly, um, historically, our sense of what is dramatically, good or bad or right or wrong, um, changes with time.
1: Is it correct that the stage in Shakespeare's day was mostly bare except for a few props such as a throne, a bed, etc.?
2: Yeah, all the evidence that we have um, suggests that there are was nothing like a, a contemporary set. Um, what we know about Shakespeare's stage is that it was a, a bare stage. Uh, there's some evidence from a. There's a wonderful guy. Um, uh, he owned the Rose uh, Playhouse, Philip Henslow, and he kept great records about the, some of the costumes he had in some of the sets. But that evidence can be ambiguous and and really mysterious. Uh, for example, he he does talk about thrones or, or monuments. But one of the pieces of setting that he writes in his inventory is the city of Paris. What could that possibly be? <laughs> How is the city of Paris represented in a in a set piece? But it it does tell us that the set pieces were minimal tables, chairs, beds, um, populated by you know sometimes uh, lavish uh, groups of costumed individuals, uh, and it was. The costumes, really, then, that uh, gave the spectacle. Um, So, scenes from the history plays, scenes from plays like um, Romeo and Juliet, the the ball scene, would have been really quite wonderful.
1: Talking about the costumes, I'm interested: were they always historically correct for the time period of the play from the beginning, or did that uh, change over time?
2: In Shakespeare's time, um, for plays set in the Renaissance. what was used was um, Renaissance clothing. And the companies got their clothing from noblemen. Um, Sometimes clothing was given to servants uh, as thank yous, or when uh, a servant was left an article of clothing, which the servant couldn't wear. And so they would turn around and sell it to uh, the theater. So there were... um, beautiful aristocratic clothing that was authentic and real and and just lived in everyday clothing. And so the the costumes themselves would have been lavish ermine and velvet and and ermine and um, all these wonderful textures and and beautiful colors, uh, things that your ordinary English man or woman wouldn't have seen. But then when you get into something like the Roman plays, costuming may have still been Renaissance clothing. And, and yet, uh, there's a wonderful little document. It's a drawing from the play Titus Andronicus, which is set in uh, kind of ancient Roman times. There are uh, characters drawn in the picture who are clearly in Roman togas, uh, but there are also people in that same sketch who look like they're uh, carrying Elizabethan uh, military equipment, uh, dressed One of them is dressed looking very Scottish. It's an ambiguous document. As time went on, um, uh, actors and actresses wore what was um, fashionable for the time. They didn't wear historical clothing specific to the given play. Uh, That doesn't come in until the middle of the 19th century, the kind of 1840s. Why was that? Why did the historical accuracy come in? Yes. Yes. Part of the credit I would give to a, an, an actor-manager named William Charles McCready. He really believed in Shakespeare as an instructive tool, and he thought that these plays should be presented in something like the time and place that the plot is set. A play like Othello, uh, which moves from um, Italy to Cyprus, he uh, had researched a, a port in Cyprus, and so for a, a scene in that play... Um, that port is sketched. And then a, a kind of antiquarianism started to emerge in the 19th century. It was a popular movement to learn more about, you know our, our ancestry. And people like Charles Kemble um, and a wonderful actor manager named Charles Keene. He had a, a group of historians uh, research all the costuming, clothing from the times, uh, architecture of the times, and his productions are extraordinary representations of historically accurate settings. He does a production of um, Richard III. At one point, there was a shower of arrows from one side of the stage to the other side of the stage.
1: Shooting arrows.
2: Shooting arrows across the stage.
1: Did, did any <laughs> of those arrows ever end up in the audience?
2: Uh, no, there's no report of anyone getting hurt uh, from Keen's Productions of Richard III. <laughs> Interesting.
1: When uh, we begin to look at uh, Shakespeare productions and theater history, there seems to be a shift that goes back and forth where everything is stripped down, then everything is opulent, and then everything is stripped down again, then everything is opulent again. Is that <laughs> is that correct?
2: Yeah, uh, generally speaking, yes, in its own way. Um, The stage was stripped down in Elizabethan times, though the costumes were quite lavish. Uh, There's a slow build from the Restoration through the early 20th century. Um, For me, a kind of inevitable march towards greater and greater realism. Um, Stage technology had changed by the 1660s, and so you started to get set designs, uh, really mostly painted flats and, and wings. And then, again, this through the, through the 18th and 19th century, this move towards more and more realistic type scenery and, and setting and, and costumes. Um, in the exhibition, one of the productions we looked at was uh, <laughs> this wonderful production by a, a brilliant man named Herbert Beerbaum Tree. He put on a, an amazing production of A Midsummer Night's Dream, and one of the things that production is noted for, I, I had heard about it you know, for years and years as a graduate student, and it was wonderful to me to actually open this prompt book. He had live rabbits on stage when the lovers went out to the forest
1: did did they get out into the audience
2: <laughs> no no they never did but they were um, they were criticized in some reviews as being you know far too entertaining <laughs> <laughs> so when you get to when you get to that level of realism um things start to shift because people really see that Spectacle and and what the audience sees has taken over from what the audience hears, and so right when realism is at its height, there's a movement against it. Some of the great expressionist designers really went back to a, a kind of stripped down um, style. People like uh, Edward Gordon Craig and in America, Robert Edmund Jones uh, uses. He uses flights of stairs and, and ramps and, and ladders. Um, in the early 20th century, he does a series of productions, uh, and starring the, the, either John or Lionel Barrymore, he does a production of um, Macbeth. And the, the set designs for that were um, really interesting because, again, we, we now go back to a bare stage, and there are three really gigantic masks hanging from the stage, uh, representing the three witches. So, right, everything kind of switches back to a a stripped-down stage.
1: You mentioned something about a prompt book, and in the exhibition there were prompt books from the 18th, 19th century. Could you tell us what a prompt book is?
2: Right. I... I love prompt books. <laughs> I just think they're, they're fascinating uh, documents. So um, you have a script of the play. But so the, the prompt book will be um, the script, the acting script. And often in a prompt book, one side of the page will have the text of the play itself. And then the other side of the page will have a series of um, notes, sometimes handwritten, sometimes small drawings to um, show character placement on the, the stage, to show the movement of an actor, sometimes to um, write out a small um, small character detail, uh, something that they might do with a, a letter. They're called prompt books because um, a member of the company, the prompter, would have been following that book. They have become, over time, in- incredibly detailed documents.
1: Was, was the idea of a prompt book that it would serve as a blueprint for the particular production only, or did designers and directors think that it might be somewhat of a historical document that might be used 100 years into the future?
2: <laughs> That's a great question. Um, some prompt books are um, solely show one production. And so a, a person like William Charles McCready made a very nicely detailed Prompt books, and he shared those with other people. Charles Keene actually got many of William Charles McCready's prompt books and used them as kind of a blueprint. But then there are prompt books that belong to the theaters themselves, and in it, the the prompter would have marked used different kind of characters. To mark the actions of, say, an Edwin Forrest as opposed to a McCready or uh, Sarah Siddons as opposed to an Elizabeth Farron. And Mm. it's a tribute, a very interesting um, note about the theater and and theater people and Mm. kind of the interesting kinds of information you can find in, in the prompt books. Talk
1: a a little bit about sets. Um, They're obviously expensive to build costumes, expensive to design. Did theaters reuse sets or costumes or did everything get thrown out and then rebuilt the next time?
2: (laughs) So um, in the restoration, when you started to get sets that represented specific places, those sets would have been reused um, and they would have been fairly kind of generic the The palace scene, the forest scene. and they were used reused so often that in fact um, uh, playbills that were posted to announce productions whenever there was new new drawings, new new set designs, that would be announced in the playbill itself because it was a big draw for the audience to come and see uh, you know, a wonderful new set. Again, it's not until someone like McCready where sets start to actually represent a, a specific place in time, um, and you can't then reuse those sets. It's at the turn of the century, though, that um, the idea that the set might actually affect how the audience understands the, the play. Um, and so the, the atmosphere of the scene, um, a sense of the the mood and, and texture. Um, whether this is a, a, a somber moment, depending on what the director wants to evoke, and and then how the scenery, how the set design is is created.
1: There's a old Broadway adage that no one ever went home humming the scenery, but Shakespeare <laughs> is so much about the words. So I'm just wondering, what is the role designs? Uh, the role of designs in helping to make a Shakespeare play fully realized? How do costumes and scenery help make Shakespeare work its best?
2: Well, I think when the costumes and the designs uh, really evoke uh, an underlying theme uh, within the play, um, there are plenty of people, and and all along there have been people, who believe that Shakespeare maybe is not well served by scenery and, and sets, and you should strip away all of that. Um, but I think that when the costumes and the sets can really give, a, not necessarily a new spin, though, though that's sometimes very helpful as well, but can um, place the, the concepts of the play uh, in a modern perspective for an audience, It's it opens them up to a whole new way of, of reading.
1: Okay. One final question. Could you take a stab at being a futurist? <laughs> do, you, <laughs> do you see Shakespeare productions living on for hundreds of more years, and what might they look like?
2: Oh, I I can't imagine a world without Shakespeare. And I, you know, um, so much is, is done with Shakespeare, from uh, very formal uh, productions to, um, to productions that really Adapt the plays. Um, actually, there's a company in DC that does uh, these sort of movement versions, non, no, no line. They don't, they don't speak any of the text, um, but it's a, it's a movement based uh, production of the play. There's a group in New York City that does productions uh, in an old warehouse, um, and you, you kind of wander around from room to room in no no set sequence, Um, seeing scenes from Macbeth. My students absolutely love that. Uh, People adapt Shakespeare plays um, to kind of modernist senses and and tales. There was a wonderful updating of uh, Romeo and Juliet set in a boys' boarding school, and that's just one of really hundreds of adaptations. So what will Shakespeare look like? I think there will always be a movement to uh, do Shakespeare with some sense of the past involved. Where the future will go, I think the modernist presentations, uh, the the sense of kind of placing Shakespeare in a contemporary world, I think that will absolutely continue. Um, and so Shakespeare then will look like what the contemporary world looks like. I think there will always be uh, also a use of um, different historical periods uh, to set Shakespeare. Anything that helps a contemporary audience understand either the play or, more likely, the world in which it which it exists. Um, is what will happen to Shakespeare in the future.
1: Denise, thank you very much.
2: Thank you. It was a pleasure talking with you.
0: Denise Whalen is an associate professor in the Department of Drama at Basser College. She curated the Folgers' Here is a Play Fitted exhibition in 2013. Denise was interviewed by Steve Martin, the longtime program director of WAMU Radio in Washington, D.C. Our podcast, Here is a Play Fitted, was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor and Esther Farrington. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge and the arts. You can find out more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.